It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Robert Frank. Robert Frank is an economics professor at Cornell's Johnson Graduate School of Management, a regular Economic View columnist of the New York Times, and a distinguished senior fellow at Demos. His books, which have been translated into 22 languages, include The Darwin Economy and The Economic Naturalist. He is also the co-author of The Winner-Take-All Society, which was a New York Times notable book and a Business Week Top 10 Book of the Year. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Robert Frank. Thank you all very much for coming out. I know there's so much to do in L.A. that you, you gave up something valuable to come and hear me, and I'm honored by that. Also honored to be in this forum, which I know is a, has a long, distinguished tradition here in the community. I'm going to try to sell you some snake oil tonight, uh, I decided. Uh, that would be the, the, the right way to start off. I'm going to try to persuade you that we could make a few simple changes in tax policy that would liberate about two or three trillion dollars a year without requiring any painful sacrifices from any citizen or without requiring anyone to give up any cherished political freedoms. That's a lot of money. That would be enough to pay down uh, all of the government debt in short order and rebuild our crumbling infrastructure, uh, all with resources created essentially out of thin air. Uh, it's, it's a bit of fiscal alchemy, I'll admit, uh, when you hear the claim. But hear me out. I, I, I hope I'll be able to persuade you that the, the logic of the argument behind the claim is not only simple but sound and that the assumptions on which it's based uh, rest on very compelling evidence. So uh, if I can persuade you of this, uh, I think that will be a good first step in starting a conversation about how to change the policies that we're operating under in, in, in the country because they're sending us uh, hurtling toward an economic train wreck. We've got huge deficits. Those aren't the immediate problem, contrary to what many people are saying. But uh, unlike many of uh, my political allies, I'm a, a deficit hawk, I think that in the long run, we've got to bring the amount we spend uh, into balance with the amount we raise in taxes. We don't have to do that this year or next year or the year after that, but we have to have a, a firm plan in place to do that. Otherwise, if you keep borrowing more and more and building up more and more debt, then the interest on the debt gradually approaches your entire national income, and then what do you eat? So it's, it's a bad plan to keep running up debt. We need to do something about that. We don't need to do it now. Right now, the imperative thing is to get the economy back on its feet. We have still over 9% unemployment. It's going on four years that the, the lesser recession has, has lasted. There's no clear end in sight. Uh, there are things we could do to pull the economy out of the, the Great Recession. Uh, they're not even very controversial. There are arguments about them, but if you look at the evidence on the two sides uh, opposing one another in these arguments, there's, there's not really any difficult questions to resolve. What we know ever since the Great Depression is that when there's a big financial crisis, uh, it tends to endure for a long time. Uh, John Maynard Keynes was the first to explain why. Economies don't right themselves automatically in the wake of big financial crises. Consumers have a lot of debt to work down. That's why they're not spending. Uh, also, many of them have lost their jobs or afraid they will. Uh, they're, they're holding back for good reasons. Uh, 
What about businesses? Uh, they already have enough capacity to produce more than people want to buy right now. Why should they invest? There's no, no reason to invest. Uh, produce with what you've got. If you took macroeconomics ever in the past, you'll have at least a dim memory of the equation y equals c plus i plus g. y is the national income. c, that's consumption. i, that's investment. C's not going anywhere. Uh, I's not going anywhere. G is government spending. That's the only other element in the equation. If you want to get spending back up to the level required to employ everybody, it's got to be government in the short run that does it. It was too bad uh, Keynes used the example he did. He was an academic and uh, of a play, playful mindset. He said, in a deep depression, it would be better than to do nothing to hire people to dig holes and fill them up again. Uh, and in fact, it would be better than doing nothing to do that. Uh, they would be paid a wage for doing it. They would spend the wage. The, that that uh, expenditure would be received by merchants who would then hire people and, and uh, factories would hire people to produce the things that those people were buying. You'd get a multiplier effect that would send the economy back towards a full employment state. Keynes did not say that you ought to dig holes and fill them up. That was not his prescription. Uh, no, nobody in his right mind would say do something useless if there are in fact many useful things that could be done. And here's where uh, the story gets very sad to my, my ear. Uh, are there useful things the government could be doing? One side of the political aisle says no. Uh, anything the government touches uh, turns bad. We can't have the government involved in anything in the economy. We have, according to the American Society for Civil Engineers, who issued a report card on America's infrastructure uh, recently, $2.2 trillion worth of desperately needed repairs to our national infrastructure. There are water systems failing around the country. There are sewage systems failing. There are dams that uh, have structural damage. Millions of people live in the shadow of these dams that could collapse at any time. There are bridges that need to be inspected and repaired. There are highways that are crumbling. Uh, countries in North Africa are building high-speed rail systems. What do we have? We have a 60-mile-an-hour train in the densest rail corridor anywhere that runs up and down the Northeast. There are in incredibly useful things that need to be done. Uh, there are people who know how to do those things. The construction industry was hardest hit those people are available. They're sitting doing nothing. The opportunity cost of fixing the roads and, and, and bridges is almost nothing if you're using people who would be building anything else useful in the meantime. The materials we need to do those jobs, they're available in world markets at very low prices right now. The interest rates on the money we would need to finance these projects, uh, you, you, you know what kind of interest you're getting. Well, uh, that's the downside of, of the current interest rate picture, there's an upside to it, which is that the federal government can borrow as much money as it wants to at 1.7% interest on 10-year treasury bills. And so what's the mystery? Cons consumers won't spend, investors won't spend, government's the only one who can spend. There are $2.2 trillion worth of projects to do. Why don't we just do them and put the economy back on its feet? Well, we hear slogans saying that we can't do that because if the government borrows more money, that would impoverish our grandchildren. Think about that. 
there's a 10-mile stretch of interstate in Nevada that desperately needs redoing. It's cracked. Uh, the cracks get deeper uh, on roads like that that are in heavy winter weather and have a lot of truck traffic. If you don't fix them now, the cracks get deeper and the, the roads cost more to fix when you wait. So according to the Nevada State Department of Transportation, Fixing a 10-mile stretch of Interstate 80 in, in Nevada uh, that needs repair now would cost them $6 million to do it. If we wait two years, just two years, it will cost $30 million to fix that same stretch. So somebody explain to me how it is that not doing the job now is going to make our grandchildren richer or why doing the job now is going to make them poorer equivalently. I don't understand that argument. Uh, is the argument that we need never fix Interstate 80? Try, try saying that out loud in Nevada. Uh, their economy will grind to a halt if we let Interstate 80 go back to gravel. We have to fix it. The question is, should we fix it now or should we fix it later? By the way, those estimates don't take into account the fact that if we fix it now, we'll be using labor that's not doing anything else useful. Uh, if we wait, we'll have to bid those workers away from other useful tasks and so on. This is a complete no-brainer. And yet, we hear slogans saying we can't do this. Uh, uh, it, it was the frustration with uh, what passes for a political conversation in the United States that got me up off the couch and on, on the keyboard to, to write this book. I think we, we have to be able to have a more intelligent conversation about what to do next than that. I think the reason we have an unintelligent conversation, though, uh, is interesting. It's because I think uh, people on both sides of the political aisle have a fundamental misunderstanding of how the competitive process works, both the right and the left. Their positions are familiar. If you listen to people from the right, uh, they will uh, cheerfully invoke Adam Smith's invisible hand, which, according to them, says turn greedy, selfish people loose, and un unfettered markets will channel their behavior in such a way as to produce the greatest good for all. Smith never said that. Uh, he didn't believe that. Uh, he didn't think markets always gave good results, but he did think it a, a remarkable finding that they often gave good results when you turn selfish people loose. And I think the invisible hand idea will endure as one of mankind's uh, greatest intellectual achievements. The, the narrative that Smith wove about how producers try to introduce cost-saving in innovations to steal market share from their rivals and how that strategy works brilliantly. They get a lot of money uh, in the short run, but then what nobody else saw clearly was the dynamic that that first step set in motion. So people who... Uh, are losing market share have a very powerful incentive to adopt the innovations that have been introduced by the innovators. Uh, and so as those innovations spread quickly th throughout the industry, competition forces price down to the new lower cost associated with the cheaper techniques. And when the dust settles, it's the consumer who's the beneficiary of all that churning. Not, not the firms, they're, they're back to producing it just barely enough to cover their costs. That's a great story. You have to, I, I, I really feel bad that so many students graduate uh, from college without a, a, a deep appreciation of what a, what a special story that is. That's why we're wealthy now. If you don't think it's good that we're wealthy, imagine 100 years ago, if you had five kids, you wouldn't uh, see more than two of them on average live to be adults. Uh, it's different now because we're wealthier.
It's good to be wealthy. I've been poor. I've been prosperous. Trust me on that. If you haven't experienced both, it's good to be wealthy. But Smith never thought you got good results no matter what. Uh, He was very skeptical of actors with a lot of market power. He said men of the same trade seldom meet, but the conversation quickly focuses on conspiracies to defraud consumers or exploit workers and so on. He, he, he was really very much like a social critic from the left. He saw monopolists under every stone. If we could just regulate the monopolists and keep them from exploiting us, all would be well. I don't think that vision is correct either. I think the left is wrong about that being the primary source of the difficulties that we confront economically. It's not monopoly power or monopsony power in the labor market. Maybe it was in Smith's day. Things weren't as competitive then. Uh, Now, if there's a firm selling a bad product at a high price to its customers, a rival firm can make known to its customers that there's something better on offer. They know how to find opportunities like that. They know how to get resources in line to exploit them quickly. Competition is fiercer than it's ever been. Uh, we're not getting exploited. Think, think about the battle between Apple and Microsoft. These are big companies. They're not, they're not free to do whatever they want, however. Uh, has Microsoft produced a good product in the last two decades? Uh, show, show me it. Yeah, maybe they have. Uh, but I've not been happy with any of them. Uh, and they've lost a lot of their market share on that account. They run big ads. They, you know, they try to try to persuade consumers. I ask my students, how many of you know somebody who has a Zune? And one hand once went up in the back. It was somebody who had worked at, at Microsoft. Uh, the market's competitive. You don't need a lot of little atomistic firms for a market to be competitive. That's how firms get to be big and successful is by getting good products into their customers' hands. What we need to worry about now, if you're worried about economic power, is the power to buy favors from the government. Uh, That's where where economic power has come into play. But quite apart from that, we would not get the outcomes we want in the the market system uh, because uh, the, the naive understanding that the invisible hand always translates individual interest into society's interest uh, is, is just gravely mistaken. And here I think we will in time realize the, the, the intellectual debt we owe to Charles Darwin in the sphere of thinking about the economy. I set out in the book to defend uh, a prediction that nobody will be able to tease me about, obviously, because I say in 100 years' time, if we poll a majority of professional economists, they'll say, most of them, that Charles Darwin was the founder of our discipline, not Adam Smith. Everybody today would say Adam Smith, and and with good reason. Why would they say Charles Darwin? I think in, in, in time, maybe not 100 years even, in time it will be widely recognized that Darwin's understanding of the competitive process was much more general and much more descriptive of the reality that we actually confront than Smith's was. Smith's theory, the invisible hand theory at any rate, will be seen as an interesting special case of Darwin's theory. Let me give you some examples of what I mean. So uh, Darwin recognized that the competition he studied, uh, the the struggle for resources among plants and, and animals in nature, was very much like the competition that Smith had studied. People are trying to outdo one another, basically, for the resources needed to survive and prosper. And 
what he noted was that in many cases you do get invisible hand-like results in nature. So think about the keen eyesight of the hawk. That's a nice story that parallels, I think, Adam Smith's product design improvement story for the invisible hand. There was a mutation that caused some hawk to see a little bit better, uh, just a random uh, uh, shuffling of the, the proteins, and that hawk caught more prey. It was able to leave more offspring, therefore the mutation spread. Then another mutation came, and it spread to those mutations accreted. The ones who had the biggest dose of the mutation gained ground in the population relative to those who had smaller doses of it. Uh, but in the end, all surviving hawks have incredibly keen eyesight. I could post a, a, a page from the LA White Pages on the back wall there, and a hawk uh, sitting right here could read you all the numbers off of it if it, if it could speak. Uh, it's no longer individually advantageous to hawks to have keen eyesight. They all have keen eyesight. But hawks as a, as a group do very well because of that fact. Uh, they've been a very prosperous species on account of it. So there's the invisible hand. But it doesn't always work out that way. A nice counterpoint is the narrative that accompanies the, the, the selection of the massive antlers we see in the bull elk. They span four feet, many of them. They're, they weigh 40 pounds. They're massive. They're huge. Why are they so big? Darwin's account began with the observation that uh, bull elk, like males in most vertebrate species, take more than one mate if they can. <laughs> the qualifier is important. Uh, it means that if some succeed at that, others aren't going to get any mates at all, which is a, a big issue in the Darwinian scheme. If you don't get any mates, then you don't leave your stuff behind. So males take every step at their disposal to try and gain access to females. Of course, it's, it's the whole ball game. And they fight with one another. And in the case of the elk, it turns out that the antlers are their weaponry. If you want to predict which bull will win a fight, uh, put your money on the one who has the slightly larger rack of antlers. That's why the first mutation was favored, spread quickly. That's why additional mutations started building on that one. And here we are, uh, millennia later, we've got antlers four feet across, 40 pounds. Well, what's the problem? The problem is, if you have that big an appendage on your head and you're chased by a wolf into a densely wooded area, what do you do? You're dead meat. They surround you easily. They, they nip at you. You're, you're, you're killed quite easily. If they could take a vote on the matter, at the count of three, push that button, all antlers will shrink by half. They would have compelling reasons to do that. Uh, they'd, they'd resolve every fight the same way as, as they do now because it's relative antler size. After all, it matters, not absolute antler size. And they'd each be less vulnerable to being caught and killed by wolves. Uh, they can't do that. Darwin wasn't much interested in animal efforts to try and resolve that kind of conflict between individual and group interests because he, he saw intuitively, well, what can they do? You know, they can't communicate, they can't organize, they can't collectively uh, take action of any kind. They're stuck. But we're not stuck. Uh, in the marketplace, there play out countless analogs to that. Uh, I, I think it's important just to, to pause a bit and stress why this is an in, inefficient situation. I, I was excited a few weeks ago when I saw that Slate had posted a review of my book prominently on, on its website. Uh, they had a nice picture of Darwin. And then I saw the subtitle of the re review and my heart sank. It was uh, 
what the Darwin economy gets wrong about evolution. That was the subtitle. <laughs> I thought, oh. Did, did I make a mistake? I, t I showed it to a bunch of biologist friends. They all seemed to like it. You know. So I, I read the review carefully, and uh, it, it was a review. I'll say his name clearly, just so if anybody watches the, <laughs> the, the video. His name was John Whitfield, uh, a science writer, uh, somebody trained in, in thinking about science, so you, we would have expected more from, from someone like this. He said, if big antlers were a problem, natural selection would have long since curbed their size. That's just a fundamental misunderstanding of how the process works. Uh, it's true they don't keep growing forever. They're not 40 feet across. They don't weigh 4,000 pounds. If they did, uh, how effective would that animal be? From age six months on, he would never be able to get his nose up off the turf. You know, he would never win any battles. He would, he would die uh, an early death. So yes, natural selection limits the growth of antlers but not before they've gotten too big from the perspective of bull elks as a group. Yes, your, your GDP uh, capability limits the amount you spend on military armaments if you're in a military arms race. You can't spend more than you earn. But does that mean that the amount you spend is the right amount? Most people think people in, in military arms races, countries embroiled in them spend too much on arms. That's why they sign agreements trying to curb that spending. These are all of a stripe. If we all stand up to see better, is that optimal from the group's point of view? None of us see any better than if we'd all remain comfortably seated. You want to see better? Go ahead, stand up. Then the guy behind you will have to stand up. And then everybody will end up having to stand up. For what? For, for no good purpose. It was Darwin's key insight that when individual and group interests are in conflict, it's individual interests that trump to the detriment of the group. And... He realized, uh, and this is beyond dispute now, that life is graded on the curve in one way or another in virtually every domain. It's not how smart you are. It's not how fast you are. It's not how strong you are. To succeed, you've got to be stronger than the people you're competing against or faster or smarter. There's the, the old story of the two campers who awaken to see a hungry bear staring them in the, in the face as they crawl out of their sleeping bags. One frantically starts tying on his running shoes. His cynical friend says, don't bother, there's no way you're gonna outrun that bear. And he says, actually, all I have to do is outrun you. <laughs> so it's, it's relative performance that counts. So, so what I do in the book is I say, all right, Libertarians, I'm going to give you the whole of your argument. I'm going to say mar markets are perfectly competitive. They're not, of course, perfectly competitive, but I think they're, they're workably competitive. I'm going to say people are rational. I don't know how many of you read the book Nudge uh, a couple of years ago. People make lots of mistakes and they're systematic. Yes, that's true too, but, but people aren't that stupid. People are pretty rational. They, they have a pretty good sense of what they're trying to achieve, and over time they, they kind of grope to reasonable solutions much of the time. So rational consumers, competitive markets, and here's the one I add, life's graded on the curve to varying degrees in different domains. That's, that's the only assumptions I need for this argument. Does anybody want to register an objection to any of them? I mean, if you're a libertarian, uh, I'm giving you a lot of ground here. I, 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 want, I want somebody to object from that perspective. If you want to say, oh, no, people aren't rational, then that makes the libertarian's case even weaker. Okay. No, I'm not objecting from the libertarian. 
I'm going after the movement libertarian here. Anybody want to defend the movement libertarian? Uh, uh, yeah. the, the key assumption that's going to sink the movement libertarian is that life's graded on the curve. Once you introduce that, their, their ship sinks. All right, so let, let's see how it works. I'll do it by means of describing a couple of simple examples. Tom Schelling, my favorite living economist, uh, had, had an example that I found enormously instructive over the years. He, he watched hockey players. Uh, he li lived most of his career in Boston. He watched the Bruins, and he saw the league evolve over many decades. Hockey players, he noticed, when they weren't required to wear helmets, never wore them. Never. But then they would vote in, a, in a, a, a secret ballot unanimously often for rules requiring themselves to wear helmets. <laughs> why, he asked, if helmets are so great, why don't you just wear helmets? Why do you need a rule? And he thought about it, and he had a pretty perceptive answer. And it's, it, it's as follows. Taking off your helmet confers a slight competitive edge. Maybe you can see better, you can hear better, maybe uh, by showing yourself to be brave enough to risk injury by skating without a helmet, you can intimidate your opponent more effectively. Anyway, a slight competitive edge. Does an athlete care more about uh, a potential risk to life and limb than a competitive edge? Uh, show me the athlete who, who, who won't dive in front of a 100-mile-an-hour puck when it's on its way to the net. Uh, the athletes won't stand idly by when one side gets a competitive edge, they'll take their helmets off too. And then they realize once, once things settle, hey, we're all of us skating without helmets and nobody got a competitive edge. It's just like standing up to see better. But the only way you're gonna get there uh, to where you wanna be is to have a rule requiring helmets. If you follow the nudge recommendation, if you just say post a, a, a notice in the locker room advising players that Maybe they've underestimated the risk of skating without a helmet. Caution, helmets, uh, 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 you need to wear them or you might get injured. They know that. That's not going to do anything. Uh, you need a rule. It's because individual interests and collective interests don't coincide. So here, here's how that example, I think, translates nicely into the labor market. So we've got the... The, the parent trying to achieve many goals, probably first among them for young uh, parents with young kids, is to send their kids to a decent school. Does anyone not know that the good schools are in the more expensive neighborhoods? Uh, that's true in every country, uh, even if the budgets are the same across school districts. The good schools are where the, the more expensive housing is. And so what What's a good school? It's a school that's better than other schools. It's a relative concept, at least in part. And so if I want to send my kid to the average school, suppose I'm the average earner, the median earner, the one right in the middle of the income distribution, what must I do? Uh, it's very simple. I must outbid 50% of all other parents for a house in the median school district. If I don't, it'll be my kids that go to the schools with the metal detectors out front, where the other kids score in the 20th percentile in reading and math. Am I going to sit idly by for that? No, I'm going to move anything out of the way I can in order to prevent that from happening. Well, I need more money to bid effectively for a house in a better school district. One way, reliably, you can get more money in the labor market is to take a riskier job. This isn't a mystery. Riskier jobs are less costly for the employer to offer. He doesn't have to buy expensive safety equipment. 
the right wing has a very powerful rhetorical statement that it issues when it criticizes safety regulation in the workplace. It says, here's a firm, they want to hire a worker to do a risky job, they tell the, the, the worker the job's risky, the worker says, yeah, I know it's risky, and I'm willing to accept the risk because I value the extra income I'll earn by more than enough to compensate me for taking the risk. We all do this. Uh, you drive on the streets of LA, you're taking risks. Uh, you could stay home the, the whole day, uh, and, 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 and that would leave you in wor even worse off. So because you can gain by taking risks, you take risks. We can't say that's illegitimate. So. Then the government comes along and says, we think workers are taking too many risks in the workplace, we're gonna regulate the amount of risks they can take. And the right wing says, where do you get off standing between these two informed, consenting adults wanting to make a contract that they both view as beneficial? That's a pretty tough argument to respond to, but here's a good response to it. If I'm trying to buy a house in a better school district and I sell my safety, I succeed if I'm the only one who does that. But what if you do it and you do it and you do it? And then pretty soon we're all feeling pressure to do it. Then we've all sold our safety and when the dust settles, what have we succeeded in doing? We've simply bid up the prices in the houses of the that are located in the better school districts. We haven't gained anything from that. Every country on the planet regulates safety. The workplace is much safer now because of that. Do, does the libertarian want to say we shouldn't regulate safety because it deprives people of their rights to make decisions for themselves uh, about workplace safety? That sounds like an attractive argument. I'm a libertarian at heart, but I say the, the right to do something uh, on my part ends when it causes unacceptable harm to others. If I sell my safety and bid for a house in a better school district and force you to do likewise, then I've caused harm to you. Because none of us has gotten anything of any value as a result of what we've done, and yet we've all given something up. People think they'll be happier if they have a bigger house. Data show that beyond a certain point, nobody's any happier when all the houses get bigger. Yet people work longer hours to get a bigger house, that works if you do it, but when everybody does it, it just raises the bar that defines how big a house you feel you need. That's the conflict between individual and group interest. Uh, there's no presumption that when individuals do what makes sense to them that will get results that make sense to us as a society. And so we're incredibly inefficient the way we go about organizing our economy. People think if there's waste, it's in government. And yes, there is waste in government. The bridge to nowhere. It's just uh, a narrative that uh, tracks very closely what the, the right-wingers say about it. The, the politicians try to curry favor with their constituents by doing their pork projects. Legislators in other states vote with them because they know that these legislators will return the favor when the time comes. My constituents who get the bridge to nowhere, they're happy, uh, even though there are only 50 people who live on the island of Gravina and the bridge was going to cost $260 million. Still, they weren't going to pay for it. It was going to be a tiny increase in taxes for people all around the U.S. They wouldn't even feel it. And then everybody else does the same thing, and smart for one, dumb for all. We're right back where we started. Yes, there's government waste, but try to cut government waste, if, if you will. 
Every president in my lifetime has campaigned on a pledge to do that, and many have tried hard. Spending's gone up in every single administration, some more than others. It's because government programs have constituents. It's hard to cut them. They scream bloody murder when you try to cut them. And when we do cut them, which ones do we cut? We cut the ones we can cut, not the ones we should cut, the ones whose constituents don't scream very loud. The most recent round of cuts in the Bush administration, when deficits were growing out of control, were the National Science Foundation research budget. Why should we cut that? That's our competitive lifeblood. We're a high labor cost country. We need new ideas or we can't compete economically very effectively. Uh, why should we be cutting that budget? We cut the Energy Department's budget for rounding up loosely guarded nuclear materials in the former Soviet Union. Why do we want to cut that? Uh, because we could cut that. Nobody knew about it, so nobody was going to scream about it. They're guarded by soldiers who drink too much, uh, who don't get paid regularly, who have low fences around their facilities. I've got two sons who live in New York. That's where those materials are going to end up someday if we don't get them locked down. We should be getting them locked down sooner, not later. We cut the budget for that. We cut nutritional assistance programs for young mother, mothers who are poor or have small children. That's going to come back and bite us and make bigger deficits uh, as a result. So we're, we're, we're being stupid. The real waste isn't there, it's in the private sector. And not because people don't shop carefully for what they buy, they shop carefully enough. I do, don't you? Uh, you don't spend your money carelessly. We waste because what you need to spend in the private sector to achieve your goals depends on what others spend. And when they spend more, you gotta spend more, then you spend more and they spend more, and you get a lot of mutually offsetting expenditure in the private sector. The mansions, do they make the, the wealthy who live in, in them any happier? My guess, we, we don't know from any concrete data, but my guess is that if we could do the relevant study, we would see that when all the mansions get bigger, the rich are less happy than before. There's more hassle in their lives, more staff to deal with. Why do the mansions get bigger then? Because others are building bigger mansions and you need to be able to entertain in the style thought appropriate for your circle. People are spending more on parties. Uh, there was a CEO who spent $10 million on his daughter's coming of age party in New York a few years back. Uh, you and I don't spend that much, but it's quite common now to see people in the middle spending $12,000, $15,000 on coming of age parties for their kids. It's expected. Uh, you're, you're left with a, a, a tough choice. Weddings now, we spent 30,000 bucks per wedding on average. Uh, two years ago, the most recent figure I could find. In 1980, in real dollars, so no inflation, uh, 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 so after adjusting for inflation, the average wedding cost $11,000. Are the people getting married happier than before? Are there, <laughs> are there guests happier than before? No evidence to suggest that they are. It's just that to, be, to show that you care, to show that you recognize the importance of the occasion, you've got to spend more now. Why is that? Because people at the top have so much more money and they're spending more. That's natural. Everybody spends more when they get more money. They've got t 10 times, 100 times as much as they had 30 years ago, so of course they're spending lavishly. The middle class doesn't seem to mind. The people just below the top, they see those uh, lavish parties or the big mansions. Now, now we need to build bigger. Maybe it's the custom in our circle to have daughter's wedding reception at home, so we build bigger. And then the group just below builds bigger. The group just below them builds bigger. So now the average new house, 2,300 square feet. It used to be 1,600 square feet in 1980. The average family doesn't have more money. That's where the waste is going. 
The, a problem in the United States is not that the houses are too small, it's that they're too big. And they're too big because individual interests don't coincide with group interests. Quickly, a solution to all this. The, re the reason we have this problem is that individual interest doesn't coincide with group interest. Rather than set up a complex bureaucracy to try and tell people what they can and can't do, I don't favor that, let's just change the tax system. And here's the fiscal magic I was describing at the outset. Scrap the income tax. Uh, it, it, it's eliminated uh, uh, permanently. In its place, we have a progressive consumption tax. This is not a 999 tax. This, <laughs> this is a progressive consumption tax. You report your income to the IRS just as you do now. That should be simplified greatly. We shouldn't have all the exemptions and deductions. That's what makes the tax system complicated, not the fact that it's progressive. Report your income, then report your savings. We know how to do that. Uh, we do that already for 401ks and IRAs. The difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that's how much you spent during the year. Then subtract a big standard deduction, let's say $30,000 for a family of four, that's your taxable consumption. Then we levy tax at very low rates if that number's small, and the rates keep getting bigger as that number grows. And if it, if it grows really big, there's no rational reason that argues against having really high rates on the next dollar you spend. So maybe 100% marginal tax rate on people who are already spending two, three, four, five million dollars a year. Think about, and this is the last point I'll make, think about the decision that confronts them when they're weighing the option of building a wing onto their mansion. It's gonna cost $2 million. Now with this tax in effect, it's gonna cost them $4 million. The rich are like you and me. They respond to incentives. They're gonna, many of them, scale back when they see it's gotten twice as expensive. Uh, and so, and here's the magic part of the tax, when they all scale back and build only $1 million additions to their mansions, then they spend $2 million, including the tax, so they're not spending any more than before, but they're just as happy with the additions they get as they would have been before, maybe even happier because big mansions are more burdensome than small ones, because everybody cut back, and it's only relative mansion size that counts. That's where the magic comes. That's where we get resources generated out of thin air. That's all we got to do. And we can pay down all the debt we've run up, we can rebuild all the infrastructure that needs repairing and not have to give up anything of any importance. If you were rich and you thought about it and one country had this tax and another country didn't, you'd want to move to the one that had it. Why, why, why blow all the money you worked so hard to earn on coming of age parties for your kids? Invest it tax-free. We need to keep the estate tax, obviously, because uh, rich people will die with even bigger estates if, if we have this, this program in effect. But that's something we should be talking about. The slogans, if, the moment I mention a tax, they say, Frank thinks he knows how to spend your money more wisely than you do. That's not what I think. Darwin thought that individual interests about how to spend their money wasn't coincident with group interests. And that doesn't mean having a big cumbersome regulatory apparatus. We already have a tax system. Just tax the thing that, things that cause harm to others. And there's a whole slew of other things that cause harm to others that we should be taxing. And a big collection of things that don't harm anybody that we shouldn't be taxing. But that's all in the book. Thank you all. I think I have I kept within my time. I did my very best. Uh, th again, thanks for coming out. Hi, I'm Alan Baer. 
Um, interesting idea. What about the elasticity? If you do that with progressive income tax, will people cut their spending to the point that revenue will actually decrease? Have you looked into that? And also, would it address things like um, my having to pay for somebody else's obesity because they're drinking so much Diet Coke? I mean, can we, would it involve taxes on t tobacco, alcohol, that sort of thing? Might people cut back their consumption so much that we would generate less tax revenue? Well, you can always raise the rates if that happens. Uh, People have cut back on smoking enormously because of the heavy taxes on smoking, and yet because the tax rates are so high on, on tobacco, the revenue from the tax on tobacco is much higher than, than it used to be. Larry Seidman has proposed that we get there by having first a consumption surtax, leave the income tax on the books, and for very high levels of consumption, you pay another tax, which is a consumption surtax. So this would only apply to families earning over a million dollars a year. You'd, you'd pay tax on any dollars of consumption that exceeded $500,000 a year. Uh, that would be revenue over and above the income tax, so yeah, it would be sure to generate a lot more revenue. But no, I don't think, think that's the problem. Uh, the, the, the real problem would be if we did this now, we would curtail spending because the, the money that was put into savings to, to secure the tax exemption would not for the most part be invested in the current climate because Businesses, as I said at the outset, don't have strong reasons to invest right now. They've already got plenty of capacity. Here's what we could do, though. We could pass this tax into law today. Well, today it's too late. Uh, we, could do it, we could do it tomorrow. And f schedule it for gradual phase-in once the economy gets back under 7% unemployment. That would actually kill two birds with one stone. It would reassure the people who are worried about deficits that we have a revenue stream in place to deal with the, the paying down of debt, but it would in the short run provoke an avalanche of spending as people sought to evade the tax that they saw coming by putting the mansions and the parties and all that on the books today before the tax takes effect. So yeah, we, we, we don't want to do it now, but pass it now and phase it in gradually. The argument that the hockey team would eventually stop, the members would stop using helmets because there was a rumor or a thought went around that there was a com competitive advantage. But this is, just doesn't ring true to me because there would be individual pressures brought upon each player, like from their spouses, for example, who would threaten them if they went on the ice, you know, without their helmet. And then you would get to the point, let's say, even if that didn't happen, you have all teams not using helmets and then the lead guy gets hit with, the, you know, a hockey puck and is out or killed there goes that team's competitive advantage from not wearing a helmet. So I think you would have a mixture from team to team on what would happen. That would just be, you know, it would, the yeah, pendulum there, would swing back. There might be some people who wore helmets even in the absence of a rule. What we know is this, though. Uh, when there was no rule in the N NHL, most goalies didn't wear helmets. If, if, if you... If, if you think about that, I mean, there were no goalies with teeth, basically, in the, in, the, in the NHL for many years. It's incredibly dangerous to be a goalie and not wear a helmet. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing and with that. And yet they didn't wear helmets. So I think the spouses have some leverage, but maybe not, not quite enough to get the helmets on. The consumption tax that you describe, uh, the, the, the luxury progressive, is very much like the luxury tax in the NBA. The it's Lakers, when they exceed the salary cap, they, every dollar they spend on uh, salary, they spend another dollar. 
And what actually one of the proposals that's being offered right now is that it become a progressive luxury tax. So my question to you is, how do we, how would you, Robert Frank, solve the NBA strike so we could have some basketball? <laughs> I think the NBA players are, are going to end up with very high salaries no matter what agreement is reached. And what we know is that sports leagues everywhere impose restrictions to limit the, the what I call the positional arms race. Uh, there are roster limits. There, there are salary caps. There are luxury taxes. There are all, all sorts of... And, and th those are just perfect examples of the claim that more competition doesn't give you more of what you want. It, give, it gives you waste and excess in many cases. The auto racing associations all have engine displacement limits. We don't say, what could that be about? They're, they must be crazy to try to restrain individual behavior. No, it's, it's obvious what they're trying to do. If you don't have engine displacement limits, all the race cars will have 40-liter 40, 40 engines, and they'll be going 400 miles an hour, and, and it, it's, not, it's not what the... Maybe the fans do want that, but uh, <laughs> that's, not what, that's not a sustainable sport. Uh, the... The tires, they, they, they once made an agreement to buy tires of a specific type from one producer because they were all spending more each year trying to get an edge by having slightly better tires than the other drivers. Uh, the Justice Department filed suit against them for that. Uh, they thought that was anti-competitive. Of course it was anti-competitive. It was because competition wasn't giving you a good result. They wanted it to be anti-competitive. Everybody liked the idea that we would all have the same tires and then the race outcome would be decided by who could drive the best, not by who spent the most on tires. One of the proposals is that the first dollar that you're above the salary cap is a one-to-one -one match. When you get five million above the salary cap, it's two. When you get 10 million, it's 250. So a progressive tax yeah. so, on so exceeding the cap. In other words, this is almost exactly what you would advise them to do. Yeah, the fans uh, like uh, a, a league that has, uh, not, if not perfect balance, at least some competitive balance. Uh, and it's a less interesting game if the big market teams can just buy up all the talent and, and prevail all the time. Uh, the, the fans seem to stay engaged more deeply when there's a competitive race going on, and these steps that kind of level the playing field contribute to that end. Couldn't what you said be applied to corporate advertising? You have Coca-Cola and Pepsi, and they're basically engaged in a zero-sum game where they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising trying to capture market share from each other. They're not building the markets, just getting everyone to spend money. And the second question is, I, your plan would hopefully uh, shift money from consumption to savings. Would some of the money that goes into savings leave the country and you know, pursuing the highest return and thus leading to less investment than you would expect in the US? Coke versus Pepsi is exactly an example of the kind of thing we're talking about. Uh, it, it's fruitless to prohibit advertising. If somebody's got a good product, you want that producer to be able to call its existence to the attention of buyers. That's, that's an important positive aspect of the competitive system. But uh, it, it, it's easy to imagine that you could design a tax on advertising that would allow the innovator to call attention to a new product without having these la largely fruitless expenditure battles on existing pro products. Uh, would savings leave the country? Well, savings leaves the country now 
economists say that you should invest where the return is highest. Uh, if, if the return is low here and high somewhere else, then uh, it's, it's better in the long run to get the larger return. Uh, things need to adjust so that returns become as high here as, as everywhere else. We're a competitive country. If we had our house in order, we'd be quite able to compete successfully for, for business against other, other countries in the world. The, the Chinese have kept their currency artificially low. I think we probably ought to take some aggressive steps to deal with that problem. But in general, the, the American workers are, are quite productive. And you know, we'll find advantage as long as we keep producing new ideas. I, I, I worry most about the, the hostility to ideas that seems to have crept in. I actually very much agree with the overall argument that you're making, but I feel like we're missing maybe a piece of this. The Coke and Pepsi example is perhaps the best example. Isn't part of what Coke and Pepsi get out of this absurd arms race that RC Cola has no chance of really denting their market share? And as a, I'm from New York, I'm a Yankee fan, and for a few years there it was Yankees, Red Sox, Yankees, Red Sox, and no one else had a chance. And from an aesthetic, collective point of view, that's obviously bad. But from a, hey, we're the Yankees point of view, your tax system would, in a sense, transfer value from me to the collective in a way that I think is consistent with the fight that we're seeing, which is that yeah. from a wealthy person's point of view, yeah, maybe I lose out with a larger, uh, maybe I'm losing a little bit with this larger house, but I'm sure that 99.9% .9 of people can never touch my daughter's birthday party, and that's what I'm really going for. <laughs> But again, the, the comparisons that count are local. Uh, if you're rich, the standard for your daughter's birthday party is the parties had by daughters of people like you. And, and if, you, if, if you match that, then she's happy. If you fall significantly short of that, then she wonders whether you love her or not. But if the hoi polloi come in and there's so many more of them, I've kind of lost. My local just got bigger and messier and more ethnically mixed. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, coming back to Coke and Pepsi, I mean, yeah, it's a waste, but at least it's just us, and we don't have to worry about all these others. I just think that would be the, the real reason. But why is it in society's interest that Coke and Pepsi can uh, spend a lot on advertising and exclude RC? Well, it's certainly not in society's interest. Yeah. I'm just saying oh, why so, they would resist. So why are they resisting? Yeah. Yeah, I... You know, I they're going to earn a normal profit in the end, more or less anyway. I mean, the, the, it's always been puzzling to me that they're so short-sighted. The auto companies resisted emission standards for, for so long. It wouldn't have hurt them. If, if they had to meet them and their competitors had to meet them, then it would have been a level playing field. The air would have been cleaner. The Ford people, you say, we breathe the same air you do, so, so we have the same incentives to clean up the air uh, that, that, that any citizen would. No. They, they get to save $1 for every dollar they spend less on pollution control equipment. But if everybody has to spend, then that's a different story. The price of the cars go up, we pay for the pollution control equipment, and I, I hope nobody in this room thinks that was a bad purchase. Uh, you know, you can see the mountains now. You didn't used to be able to see them. I've been turning over your you know, proposal in my head a little bit, and um, I'm really curious about the back end of it, the state tax part, because um, it seems... Is it really worth it to uh, teach basically the ultra-rich a lesson to not spend so much on their daughter's sweet 16 parties? Is it worth that 
in order to reduce the amount of liquidity and, and to build up these stores of savings in people. Is your estate tax, my question is basically, is your estate tax going to be large enough to really account and make you know, the, the playing field level again for the next generation? I can't say what, what would emerge from a law like this. This is not, I mean, a lot of people hear this proposal and they say, oh, yeah, you've convinced me that it would have the salutary effects you describe, but this could never happen. And, and, and look, uh, we're on a, a, a collision course, basically. There's a huge economic train wreck uh, not too far in the future. I always liked what Herb Stein said. This was Nixon's chief economist. He said, if something can't go on forever, it won't. Uh, and, <laughs> and so... You know, they, they, can, they can scream bloody murder when, when I propose taxes. They can say social engineering. You know, I, I propose taxes on harmful activities. If you get on a crowded freeway, you're causing harm to the people who are already on it. You make them take longer to get where they're going to. Why, why, should, you, why should you be able to do that with impunity? Why shouldn't you be asked to take into account uh, the question of whether you really need to be on that road then or whether there might not be some other time to do the errand when it's less crowded? a charge for getting on that crowded roadway would have exactly that effect. There's too many people on it. The ones who stayed on it would be the ones who had a, a real reason for being on it, and they would get where they were going much faster. That, that makes the pie bigger. And when you make the pie bigger, you can always have everybody end up with a bigger slice than before if you give attention to the distributional issues of how you distribute the gains. So I, I don't see this as a insurmountable problem. I wrote an article about this tax in 1997 and in, in a matter of days I got a nice warm letter from Milton Friedman, the, the patron saint of small government conservatism. He, he said he didn't think he, that the government should be spending more. I was saying, you know, here are the useful things you could do with the revenue from this tax. But, he went on to say, if the government did need more revenue, this would be exactly the right way to raise it. And he sent me a reprint of his own article published in the 1943 American Economic Review where he had advocated a progressive consumption tax to pay for the World War II effort. Uh, and Sam Nunn and Pete Domenici introduced the same tax, in essence, in 1995 as a, a bill in the Senate, the Unlimited Savings Allowance Tax, they called it. Uh, there are people at the American Enterprise Institute who are advocating this tax. There, there was a, a, a conservative in National Review who wrote an article to praising this proposal. Uh, so I, I, I've, I'm feeling a little uneasy if they're all so excited about it. Maybe I, maybe I need to rethink this. But, but that's the thing about a proposal that generates a, a huge increase in the amount of available resources. Everybody can win. So why shouldn't conservatives and liberals be in favor of it? I can't think of a reason. How, how, how big a political genius would you have to be to sell an idea where everybody wins? When I think of Darwin's theory of evolution and the natural world, it really is subject to, or at least has been for millennia, subject to the natural world and that mankind's somewhat sudden appearance uh, half a million years ago, 100,000 years ago, um, has injected emotion, consciousness, the ability to alter the environment. How does that factor into your theory about economics when you consider the fact that, um, that we are able to change things? We can't just walk by and watch someone suffer on the ground. We have to help the person. Whereas in the animal kingdom, 
that probably wasn't a factor in terms of their survival. We have a sense of community that maybe exceeds that of which you might see in the animal kingdom. I, I think that's accurate. Darwin certainly studied uh, the expression of emotion in man and animals. It wasn't just humans who expressed emotions of the sort you're talking about. If you read some of Franz de Waal's work, you know, you'll see some very rich precursors of the human moral emotions in, in many primates. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we, we should celebrate the fact that we have both the cognitive and emotional skills to, to craft solutions to these kinds of collective action problems. The people often confuse Darwin as a, as a kind of a survival of the fittest social Darwinist, uh, as somebody who thought whatever uh, natural selection favored was therefore good. That wasn't Darwin's position, not, not as I read Darwin. Darwin was, was an incredibly humane man. And I think he was well aware that competition forces individuals to act in ways that, that cause enormous misery for, for other creatures. And, and we can get past that in ways that many other creatures can't. The, the alpha male lion, his first thing he does when he ascends to the alpha position in the pride is kill all the cubs sired by the previous alpha male. That brings the females into estrus more quickly and spreads his genetic contribution more rapidly. Uh, you, you can't watch footage of that happening and, and not say that nature drives behavior in ways that cause a lot of pain. I mean, Darwin knew that. The main reason I came here, I said, I, I read the article in, in the, I think the LA Times, and I saw the title and said, right on, I have to see this person, because many times you read a book and you say, the guy say exactly the way I feel. So I, I came here to see you, and I like everything you say. The only thing, I'm, I'm a little bit cynic in my old age, and. Uh, the suggestion, I understand what you are saying, but the thing is that all the time there is suggestion, there is resistance. I don't see the people, the richer people will have to pay more because they'll spend more. And they, by nature, will resist it. And in this country, it's a democracy. Mm. <laughs> the, the rich people write the law, they get who they want in, in, uh, in government, and they write the law and they will resist it. And it's simple, yes, but it won't happen in my opinion. I, I don't think it's in the interests of the rich to, to have the mix of things that we buy now. Look, if, if you drive a Porsche 911 and you hit a big pothole and it destroys your, your tire and wheel, that's 1800 bucks for that car to replace those. And that happens daily in New York. I mean, the potholes are, are, are monstrous. Uh, you've got a great car, but where can you drive it without risking trashing it in a couple of months? Uh, or, or you drive into work in Minneapolis. You know, you've, you've got a nice car driving across that bridge. It wasn't just poor people who fell into the Mississippi. There were rich people on the bridge, too, when it happened. And... You know, spending money on those things means that you spend a little less on other things, but if the things you spend less on are consumption above two, three, four, five million dollars a year, how urgent were those things? Those are the things, I mean, we don't need a bureaucrat to decide they're, they're naughty things. Uh, they're just things that can't be urgent in the, in the normal scheme of things. 
They're positional. They're things where how good they are compared to how good other things in the same category are is what defines their value. And for those kinds of things, spending less in tandem just generates the same happiness in the aggregate as before. So I think any smart, rich guy would pick a society that had this policy over one that had the one we have if you could get him to hold still long enough to have a conversation about it. Of course, you can't. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, I, I was so discouraged to hear uh, a senior staffer of one of the high-ranking Republican leaders uh, say when he was asked, did the Obama jobs bill have a chance? A perfectly reasonable bill you know, to rebuild schools and roads and bridges. You know, We need to do this. Uh, and he said, we've got Obama on the ropes. Why would we give him a win now? And I thought, oh, you know, that's not the way the political system should be thinking about this stuff. You know, we should be, the government should be getting together, uh, you know, if the Republicans want lower taxes than the Democrats, then argue about it and find some, some rate you can agree on. But uh, not to do things that would benefit everyone because you've got slogans that you've planted in people's mind uh, that make them think that cutting government spending is the right thing to do. That, that's wrong, I think. To do that. And I hope that what you're pushing for will work. I really wish, but I doubt it. But thank you for the effort. I, I'm nothing if not a realist. I, I, I wrote, started writing about this stuff in a book I published in January of 1985. The title was Choosing the Right Pond. And uh, I had already thought about many of these same issues in, in a similar way then, and I thought, I was really excited, you know, that's why, that's why markets uh, disappoint so often. So I thought, all right, so, so it's January, it's coming out, by October, November, there'll be bills sort of winding through the House and Senate, we'll deal with all this. That was 1985, nothing's happened, uh, as far as I know, uh, in response to any of those observations. So, yeah. I'm not expecting that this will happen overnight, but here's what we know. We know that social movements are hard to forecast. Uh, where's this Occupy Wall Street movement gonna go? I don't think anybody can pretend to know where it's gonna go. Who predicted that the Eastern European governments would fall in 1989? Just the same people who predicted it every year for the last 30 years, but none of the serious political scientists had any idea that was coming when it came. Things happen explosively once they happen. And it would be totally gratifying to me if, if six months from now people said, yeah, we knew this was the right thing to do all along and nobody, nobody uh, gave me any credit at all for suggesting it. Uh, that would be fine. And um, I would just like to say I totally like your idea. I think it is a very sound concept. But um, I just feel like the explosion that you're talking about would be difficult to create in our society because, I mean, the math most happiness perhaps in like a small... African tribe that has not much contact in the outside world is a completely different concept, I feel, than what would exist in the United States where, States, where I feel like we have created a society where we measure our happiness or what we think is our happiness based on like how much crap we can kind of accumulate. And I just feel like uh, this entire rebranding of society would be difficult and just hard to prevent with such a globalized world where people see nations that still function in the way we are now. I mean, they're going to look at, you know, the tallest skyscraper in the world in Dubai and be like, wow, I want that. And I just... I, how, how do you think this explosion is going to come about? Because, I mean, still my friends want to get as much cheap stuff as they possibly can and hoard it because they can. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, you, you ought to be able to outcompete those guys in the long run. Uh, that, that's a bad formula for, for getting ahead in the world. If you want to consume as much as you possibly can in your lifetime, you should be saving 30, 40% of your income every year. It would mean you'd consume a little less up front, but it wouldn't be very many years past when you'd overtake the people who were spending 98, 99% of their incomes, even though you were spending only 60% of yours. Uh, so, yeah, it's hard to save. Uh, there, there are collective action problems. Uh, spending is tempting. Uh, a friend of mine tried to get me to go to wine tasting classes. We were in our 30s. I said, I, I don't want to know why this bottle of Premiat isn't, is, isn't satisfactory. It was a $3 Romanian Cabernet that we used to drink. Uh, <laughs> I'll wait till I'm 50. And so I did wait till I was 50. Now I spend a lot more, but uh, I can afford it now. But just do you think it could become popular in like a time frame that is realistic? Popular to cut back and be frugal? Yeah. I, I'm not asking people to change the culture. I, I think it's very difficult to change the culture. Obviously it can happen, but that's, as an economist, I don't feel I bring any special expertise to the table about how to do that. In fact, economists uh, tend to take the opposite view. Uh, show me what your culture is like, and I'll go in and I'll find the costs and benefits that made the culture that way. Uh, so the Japanese live in r really small housing compared to us. Why is that? Well, they have a different culture? No, it's because land costs hundreds of times per square foot more there than, than here. So, yeah, I, I, I think if, if we're doing too much of some things, make them more expensive. Uh, so it's in that sense that I feel like I'm a libertarian at heart. It's way better to tell somebody, look, what you're doing is causing harm to others. Don't, don't say you can't buy an SUV. If you buy an SUV, you put others at greater risk of, of getting killed. The, the heavy vehicles increase everyone's risk uh, of dying, even the SUV owner, uh, contrary to what many of them seem to believe. But... Some people have a need for a vehicle like that. Maybe they tow a boat uh, up into the mountains. They, they, they need a heavy vehicle like that. Uh, they can rent one. They can, all right, maybe they can. But, but then sh that should be their choice. If, if, a, if a station wagon would serve almost equally well for you, why should you ignore the fact that there's that extra burden you're putting on people if you buy the heavier one? You know, tax vehicles by weight. There, there are just countless things like that we can do. CO2 is going to burn the planet up with some non-trivial probability. We, we could ease the risk of that by putting a heavy tax on CO2. And the, and the trade treaties have enough muscle where we could say goods that aren't subject to similar taxes in other countries can't be sold here or can be sold here only with duties on them that approximate a tax like that. So we could be doing that. Tax harmful activities. There, there's a, the, the, the Strunk and White writing manual uh, has a passage in it that always, uh, I always liked. I didn't, didn't know why I liked it for a long time. It says, omit needless words, omit needless words, omit needless words. They say it three times. I thought, well, wait a minute. He says, omit needless words. And then he said, if it's important, say it over and over again. Uh, it's okay to do it then. So tax harmful activities. Tax harmful activities, tax harmful activities. That's the last word. <laughs>